Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by teacher, author, host of The Saucer Life, and co-host of the Great Lakes Lore podcast, Aaron Golias. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Rob. Good to be here. Uh, it's good to have you, man. Uh, I've been listening to your pod uh, for years now. It's fantastic. And uh, it really gives you a different perspective on this topic so where did your interest come from in ufos and contactees and stuff because you do focus a lot on uh you know contactees and that type of uh, those type of encounters so where did that interest come from it's weird um i, I was interested in in, in ufos and, and other paranormal stuff but mostly ufos going back uh, as a kid the um various books in the library. I think by the time I got to junior high, um, I discovered the uh, um, the Man, Myth, and Magic series of books, mm-hmm. and there was uh, another sort of time-life mysteries of the unknown thing. And so I was, I was into the topic, and um, then I think X-Files started when I was a senior in high school, so that got me a little more deeply into it and then go off to college in 94 or so and you, d- you discover the the very sort of nascent internet with with Usenet and all sorts of uh, interesting uh, conversations about UFOs generally the more conspiratorial stuff and I I'm not sure I remember exactly when I first learned about contactees it was it was in college. It was probably in a general book about UFOs that that mentioned the contactees, and I thought those were interesting. And so I, I found some other stories that uh, that were out there. And what was um, interesting to me at the time was was the way that, that very few UFO researchers or even researchers in other scholarly areas didn't really look at uh, at, at contactees. It was it was very much on the um, the, the sort of nuts and bolts sides of things, the, um, the the Air Force cover up, the abduction phenomenon, things like that. And be, because by the by the '90s and early 2000s, the the contactee movement had faded. And then in graduate school, when I uh, needed a research topic for my master's thesis, uh, it was it was down to uh, to two choices. It was um, UFO belief during the Cold War or pro wrestling during the Cold War. And <laughs> um, being history, I need primary sources. And there is not a lot of footage of pro wrestling that was broadcast live from TV studios in the 1950s and 60s. So I went with UFOs and um, I had to expand it beyond just contactees because I wouldn't have had enough material available to me at the time and it needed a little more context. But it was sort of sort of a function of, of finding it an interesting topic, an interesting aspect of an interesting topic, but also um, also being an area where not a lot of people had uh, had done things, at least not in history. Uh, religious studies scholars had been looking at contactees for, for quite a while, but um, at that point, historians had not really. So it was uh, very much a case of nobody has done this, so why don't I go ahead and do it? Yeah, absolutely. And like the only other noted historian that I can think of that is really veered into this topic is David Jacobs and look at 
his direction. So I think if we're if we're going off of where David Jacobs went, I think I, I think you took the better route. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody sort of forgets that Jacobs had this this sort of very, very, you know, dry, scholarly, straightforward, you know, dissertation that he turned into a book about the history of, uh, of the UFO phenomenon in the United States. And because he, he'd sort of just abandoned that approach and mm-hmm. went down into weird sort of areas. He actually came to my co- our history club, brought him to uh, my college to, uh, to give a talk. Um, back in 98. So I was able to have dinner with him and, and meet him in person and then uh, then have my friends laugh at me for being interested in stuff that was so um, un- unbelievable, to put it charitably, as, uh, as, as they said it. Because at that point, by ni- that was 98, uh, he, was, he was solidly into there is a, you know, a hybrid race that is being developed. He was, he was on the sort of book tour for the threat. Mm-hmm. So it was very much the, you know, they're here to replace us sort of thing. And, and, you know, I was just thinking, I was sitting in the crowd thinking, oh, geez, why can't he just talk about something slightly more credible than his hybridization theories? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh embarrassing. Embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, uh, that, um, definitely a, a sore subject when it comes to David Jacobs and kind of the direction that his career turned, but, uh, you know, maybe the men in, men in black got to him, which is the topic that we're talking about today. But to be honest, uh, it was, I think you were in kind of a no win situation because, uh, whether it's UFOs or wrestling, it just seems to be a no win situation either way. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it, it, it's it's difficult to it's it's difficult to tell people you're interested in some things. Yes, um, <laughs> I've I've stopped telling people I'm interested in conspiracy theory over the last couple of years because they it, it it was more fun when fewer people knew about how bad conspiracy theory could get. So, mm. the last couple of years have been rough. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, you've you you your last book is is on conspiracy theories so uh y'all should definitely go check out Aaron's books because they they do dive into uh the conspiracy theory elements that uh, pervade this country uh but today we're we're talking about the men in black we've never done an official episode on the men in black we've we've seen them in certain accounts and we're going to uh, you know revisit uh one of those accounts today but uh it, it uh, seemed fitting to have you on because you have given presentations on the men in black and you've talked about kind of the origins where the uh lore surrounding men in black comes from and um to start with i uh, my first introduction to the Men in Black uh, in UFO literature was through uh, Nick Redfern's book, The Real Men in Black, and uh, I, I always loved the way that he described it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna quote directly from the book here. Quote. Uh, For years, or perhaps even for centuries, the men in black have been elusive, predatory, fear-inducing figures hovering with disturbing regularity upon the enigmatic fringes of the UFO subject, nurturing their own unique brand of terror and intimidation. 
Like true specters from the outer edge, the MIB appear from the murky darkness and roam the countryside, provoking carnage, chaos, paranoia, and fear in their wake before returning to that same shrouded realm from which they originally oozed. Uh, I mean, can you ask for a better description? (laughs) Redfern really does, um, really does sort of gussy up some of these things, mm-hmm. doesn't he? I mean, just, 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 yeah. just wonderfully sort of, you know, just th- on the correct side and, and, and to my taste of, of, of not being overwrought or, or too, uh, too embroidered. He, he really does a nice job. He does. Uh, he, his writing uh, reminds me a lot of uh, gray barkers in many ways. Um, maybe not the fact that he, you know, specifically, uh, putting falsehoods in his books or anything like that, which, you know, Barker is known to have done. Um, but uh, he definitely heads down that more conspiratorial realm. I remember reading Top Secret Alien Abduction Files, and there was a whole chapter about not microchipping your kids. Which, right. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah and and it's, it's it's like, um yeah, no, no sort of like like consciously inserted falsehoods or anything like that but it's one of those situations where um with with redfern and and i think with with um other previous authors that i think redfern sort of um sort of is the successor to like brad steiger Mm -hmm. uh, there's really an element of of how much of this that they're writing do they actually believe right Right. um because it's very much presenting stories and, and and sort of helping you know, promulgate the, uh, the, the lore of it. But, uh, but yeah, he, uh, Redfern does some good stuff. Uh, three men seeking monsters is, uh, is a really, is an earlier one was a really good sort of firsthand account of, uh, of doing some things rather than just telling stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, he's, he also talked about women in black encounters too, which, uh, you know, most people didn't talk about. And he, he kind of scraped the bottom of the barrel. There was one story that I, that I did like kind of a mini episode on, um, which he talked about like a, uh, it was a King Arthur researcher who had been looking for his tomb that, uh, had seemed to gotten close to the truth. And then he gets a couple visits from this woman who tells him to stop. And then she turns into some kind of like weird monster during the second visit. And it's like, okay, (laughs) yeah, sure. And he's also written a book about the women in black encounters too, but like, um, they're out there. They, they do occur. Um, but it's, um, it's through the, you know, the, that moniker, the men in black that, uh, this phenomenon, it kind of exists. It's where the majority of encounters come from. And, um, when we talk about them, there are, you know, there are certain, um, features of it. Uh, we're talking about individuals. Often they are described as having at times Asian features that, uh, individuals having darker skin and, and such it's mm-hmm. the descriptions of them vary but they're often wearing you know black black suits white shirts black ties sunglasses and fedoras basically what you see in uh the men in black films plus the 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 fedoras they often wear fedoras right right yeah. It's important, you know. You've got to be stylish, even <laughs> if you are not within your time period. You gotta, you gotta look styling. Um, 
They drive vintage, kind of new off the assembly line Cadillacs, uh, and in the UK, and they were um, known to drive these like '60s style Jaguars. Um, they often have odd features um, uh, and mannerisms that kind of make them seem off a little bit. Uh, you know, there's uh, famously that that one story from. The Mothman prophecies, in which one of those figures walks into Mary Heyer's office and you know starts asking, you know, what, what would you do if we told you to stop printing right. stories? Yeah, and then she gives him a pen, and he's like, never seen a pen before. <laughs> right. Yes. Very. You know, pretending to be human, trying to pass for human. Yes. Um, that is that is uh, one of the odd features. Uh, they often make, uh, you know, threats, but very rarely kind of follow up with the exception of like two cases. Uh, Robert Richardson in uh, in Ohio in 67 and uh, another case that we're going to talk about. It's, it's rare that they ever follow up, but uh, they are menacing in, in many ways. They they often say like nonsensical things too um you know like uh, uh one story that uh, we revisit the herbert hopkins incident in which a uh the men in black asks herbert hopkins if he knows how barney hill died it's like okay. wow yeah yeah it's 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 weird they often have sing-songy voices sometimes they have like it's sing-songy voices with that monotone um the redfern kind of really noticed that they uh, oftentimes they grab they travel in groups of three but uh, oftentimes you also see them in like ones and stuff like that but uh um and sometimes people report having odd health encounters uh, odd health effects after these encounters so it's pretty much your the features of it there there are a lot of different theories out there as to what they could be you know um government agents and and uh disguised aliens uh redfern got into the tulpa theories and 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 a lot but uh this is this is what we're talking about menacing people that show up to your door when you've had a UFO encounter or in, in other cases where people have used Ouija boards, even have received visits from the men in black. So this is what we're talking about here. Yes. And it's it's interesting because um, the, the the men in black phenomenon, it, it, it's so varied. And mm -hmm. when as as people will see when we go back to the origins here in a second, um, it, it starts off, it's very low key. Yeah. to begin with and then it just it just builds and builds and builds to the point where you're bringing in things from you know the middle ages or you're 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 bringing in tulpas and and, and things like that so it's uh, it's definitely one of those uh, ufological concepts that has uh, that has you know sort of snowballed over the last gosh 70 years i guess yeah yeah absolutely and and that gets into how these stories were framed and it and it begins with albert bender in the early 50s an eccentric a very eccentric kind of person who by his very nature seemed to have uh obsessive compulsive disorder maybe other types of uh, mental disorders 
Uh, he was a resident, resident of Bridgeport, Connecticut, served in the Air Force for a few years. But he had a love for like the macabre and like gothic horror and things like that. And at one point he had converted the attic that he uh, of the house that he lived in with his stepfather into a quote unquote chamber of horrors. So, uh, you know, just kind of imagine this DIY gothic horror space, you know, with eerie sounds on record players and, you know, eerie images on walls, the kind of bump in the night kind of stuff that, uh, you know, you, you would think mm-hmm. of uh, for the time. But uh, his interest in paranormal phenomenon kind of starts with the disappearance of Flight 19 in the Bermuda Triangle in 1945. And after that, he starts diving into the works of Charles Fort and, and other occult topics, witchcraft and, and such. And um, there are even stories, uh, I, I believe, in his family of people having encounters with strange people in, in their like bedrooms as kids and stuff like that. Like these stories kind of come out after the fact, but he started to take an interest in the UFO topic in, in about 1950. And that's when he started to connect with like-minded people. In many ways, he kind of reminds me of um, Paul Benowitz, but maybe not as off the deep end, I would say. Um, yeah, I, I, I can see, I can see that comparison. Um, I, I think, I think one of the differences that differences is that when Bender begins to take an interest in it, it's such a new thing mm-hmm. that, that there's no, in 1950, there's, there's really no established lore to, um, to get into. And I, I think it's, it's interesting that, that he, he sort of, he sort of gets into this from, the perspective of this is a mystery to be solved that might be connected to other mysteries. But um, I, I think it, the way he described it, I'm trying to remember his words, but it's it's a mystery that would be solved by, uh, by by clear thinking and a rational approach. Yes. So he he took it as a a very sort of um, sort of scientific rational endeavor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was very science-minded in the in the scientifically minded in the way that he thought of things, and uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um, so he would eventually, you know, he just starts connecting with people, and he would establish the International Flying Saucer Bureau, otherwise known as the IFSB for short, in April of 1952. And you know, this this network would just grow and grow for uh, the better part of like a year and a half. They had a a journal of their own called Space Review, uh, in which they would publish like UFO accounts and kind of speculate on the nature of where they come from and and, and stuff like that. But uh, it's in October of 1953 when he sends out this cryptic warning in Space Review to researchers to be very cautious he alludes to the fact that he's basically gotten to the truth of this thing, but he can't publish it because, well, you know, he's he's not allowed to, basically. He's, uh, you know, and then that's the thing. He's controlling this narrative completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's 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 fun the way he did it, because in and I think it was like the issue before the October 53 issue, mm-hmm. he says, you know, next month we are going to have an important update. We are no longer accepting any new memberships. He sort of hints that there's something coming. And then, you know, 
in October. It's like there's there's nothing to see here. Um, we advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and so it and then they keep publishing space review in a non saucer format. I always loved that <laughs> phrase. They sort of they sort of pivot it to being just a a sort of space science magazine mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of rocketry fandom. And uh, he was, uh, Bender was also involved in like the, the, the International Rocketry Association or something like that. So that was, that was one of his interests. And um, because they, they, they wanted to make sure that people who had subscribed would, you know, get, get their money's worth. But it, it, it's, it's a very, it's very much a, um, very much a tease. Like they are going to say something and then, oh, nothing, we can't say anything. And, you know, Let's just talk about the moon <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's yeah, it's great that they that they do try and carry on for a little while. And I, I think what's interesting is that you can actually um, listen to the issues of Space Review through audible.com now. They have a compilation. You can I'm pretty sure you can uh, buy a a a, uh, a a book formatted version, too. And um, interestingly enough, there is a, a, a member, Gray Barker, he's infamous uh, within ufology, uh, especially not just with the Men in Black, but also in kind of his role uh, researching the uh, Mothman in the mid-1960s because he was he was pretty much there with John Keel. It, it like it took John Keel a bit to start showing up because he was working on, you know, a bunch of other things, if I remember correctly. And then, you know, he finally takes an interest, starts showing up and and uh, getting involved in that. But uh, Gray Barker, he he joins IFSB in 1953 and his interest starts with the Flatwoods Monster case, uh, which occurred in Braxton County, West Virginia. Um, you know, it's infamous at this point. It has, it's it's larger than life in um, UFO lore, and we've kind of touched on it here before. But um, uh, it's through that case that he starts to really investigate uh, UFO um, encounters and such. And I think one of my favorites uh, is... Uh, his investigation of the Brush Creek encounters mm-hmm. in California, yes. because yeah. he uh, he goes out there, you know, talks to witnesses and he basically alludes to being arrested for talking to witnesses. So, um, you know, it's it's a wild chapter in his book. They knew too much about flying saucers, um, which is it's just where our men in black mythos will start. So he publishes it in 1956. And I mean, this is, this is like kind of one of the classics of, you know, UFO paranoia and speculation. It's one of those books that focuses not necessarily on the UFOs themselves, although they do play a part, but on Mm -hmm. the nature of UFO investigation and how, uh, you know, sometimes people don't want you to investigate those things. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and I think one of the things that, that Barker does in it really well with the, the Flatwoods case and and Brush Creek is especially the Flatwoods, um, he was writing this up for Fate magazine, right? Right. I think I think it was Fate. And yep. um so he has a a sort of, you know, 
burgeoning reputation when he gets hooked up with the IFSB and is, is asked to be their their director of investigations and sort of manage the investigations for the organizations and things. And then he he gets involved in the in the Brush Creek story is is just is just great. Um, it it's, is. <laughs> it's a it's a lot of fun. Um, and and they knew too much is uh, it's it's my it's my favorite UFO book. I I read it. Usually every year, um, mm. every every September for reasons that are too complicated to get into, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it's I, I don't have a a fancy version of it, I, but I've got the Illuminate Press version, and I'm a big fan of Illuminate Press because they published a lot of cool Jim Keith books back in the day. So um, I've got that, and I've got like I think the original paperback version, which is the most boring cover ever but um it's it's a good book because as you say it is about the investigations it's about the investigators you get to know some of these people um names like uh, august roberts and uh dominic lucasi who you're, you're if, if you read you know old jim mosley newsletters or any of the the stuff coming out of the the east coast saucer organizations back in the 50s and 60s you're, you're, you're going to recognize a lot of these names and you get to know them a little more uh, a little more as people yeah yeah, absolutely. And um, if seriously, folks, if you've never read, they knew too much about flying saucers. Get your hands on it. It's it's widely available, uh, you know, Amazon on Audible and stuff. And uh, yeah, I read it for the first time a few years ago, and it's just like absolutely fantastic. But um, yeah, in this book, Barker, he talks about Al Bender and he kind of he doesn't necessarily get too deeply into why he stopped. Like, uh, you know, it gets into correspondence between people, but he ultimately frames it to, Hey, there were three people. They showed up at my house and they told me to stop. And that's where you get this framework for the men in black. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because, because you're right. There isn't a lot going into it that the most that we get is that there was a meteorite that crashed through a sign and it was sent off for analysis. And it's shortly after that, that Bender kind of, you know, starts, starts pulling away. There's little hints, um, the the correspondence you mentioned. And I I do want to say about the correspondence. Um, I was able to uh, a few times go down to the Gray Barker collection in uh, Clarksburg at the library there. And it's really interesting to read through the letters back and forth between Barker and Bender and Barker and, and his other, like, like, um, Lucchese and, and Roberts and these, these people. And, as you you read the correspondence, the actual documentation, you realize that that what the or or that they knew too much was it was pretty accurate. He was he was relaying these conversations they had in in a very in a very accurate way. Um, very unlike Barker's later reputation, which we might get into at some point. Um, so it, it's very much these guys have no idea what what's going on with Bender, and they're trying to find out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, the framework that he puts this in is that he 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 doesn't allude to what the men in black are, but you kind of get the idea or the impression that he thinks that they are maybe government related and putting it into the context of the time that kind of makes sense, because we um, earlier that year, you know, in um, I, I forget if it's like January, February, some sometime around there, we have the Robertson panel coming in to 
Project Blue Book and kind of changing the nature of their um, the, the scope of their investigations and how, mm-hmm. um, you know, you need to downplay these reports, uh, you know, the, the whole mass hysteria angle. So um, it's it, it's really not out, far out of the area of speculation to assume that then the CIA also took an interest in, you know, civilian saucer groups and what they were doing. And it's, you know. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's uh, I don't know if it's proven at this point, but it seems pretty obvious that they probably had a role in that at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's much question that they were involved. It's it's a question of degree, right? right? It's a question of how much and and when and if we can determine who was doing what when with regard to uh, with regard to these things because it's like every other aspect of the phenomenon it's never just one thing right so barker puts this framework out there could be government agents that are doing this and then six years after the publication of they knew too much about flying saucers you get to flying saucers and the three men albert bender's book and from his side of the story, you know, you get like these incidents leading up to the dissolution of the IFSB in which, uh, you know, he's having these odd encounters at like movie theaters. At one mm-hmm. point there is he, he says that there is a man that uh, like kind of materializes into a chair next to him while he's watching a movie. Uh, there's like a lot of paranoia into this, but. Um, the story, as I recall it, because uh, it's been a while since I read it, but Bender claims that in the attic, in this, uh, you know, house of horrors, he, you know, hears the sound coming from, you know, the attic. He goes in there and, and these like three men have materialized in his attic and they tell him to stop with the saucer stuff. Um, they basically tell him, you know, where they come from and all this stuff. And I believe uh, they might have even taken him, you know, to their planet or whatever. Like it gets very convoluted at a certain point because, if I do recall correctly, these beings, their true form was that of the Flatwoods monster. Oops. Right. Or, yeah. or something along those lines. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, they are they are sort of shape shifting. Um, and I, I think they they first make contact when when Bender is is it's like this world contact day where you're supposed to yeah. repeat this psychic message over and over. And and he has like a horrible pain in his head and, and hears a voice. Um, yeah, they were I think they took him to their base in Antarctica. Antarctica. Um, And they were from the planet Kaik, which is spelled K-A-Z-I-K. The the Z is silent, um, (laughs) which is just the most... The, the silliest, uh, the silliest thing ever. Um, there's, there's, there's one, um, there, there's, they, yeah, they take him to the base. Uh, they, uh, they, they slather him in this gel and put him under a purple light, which, um, which he says they tell him will prevent him from ever getting the most dread disease, which has been interpreted to be cancer, um, that Bender was, was talking about. Um, because I, I think some people who knew him said he had a, a, a very definite fear <laughs> yeah. of of cancer. So so there's all of this. There, there, it, it, it sort of turns into 
kind of a dark contactee story in Flying Saucers and uh, and the Three Men, and is 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 not really supported by by anything we had seen um, we had seen up to that point. Um, people who knew both both Bender and um, and Barker uh, said that that basically Barker wrote a lot of um, the Bender book or, or heavily edited it to the point where it's hard to tell what is Bender's and, uh, and, and, and what is, uh, and what is Barker's. But there's a lot of question about, you know, what Bender experienced because, you know, in, they knew too much. It's like you said, it's very much a, a implied that it's, it's a government cover up in Bender's book. It's who the hell knows. Um, and then there were people who said that that Bender hadn't experienced anything, that Barker made it all up. Um, one person who knew everybody involved uh, insisted that Ben or that Barker and two of his friends had put on disguises and went up there themselves to um, to scare Bender, which doesn't. Well, you know, <laughs> Bender, Bender and Barker. I'm not sure they ever met face to face. Right, right. Uh, so he might have been able uh, to pull that off. Um, Jim Mosley, in an interview with Jim Keith for Keith's book, uh, Casebook on the Men in Black, said that that basically during the 1950s, Barker honestly did not know what Bender had experienced. He had a genuine curiosity about it, a genuine sort of curiosity about the phenomenon in general. And it was realizing after several years that that Bender probably didn't experience anything. And then he starts talking about the planet Kayak and whatever. Mosley's contention is that it was that um, experience with Bender that basically sent Barker down the road of, what the hell, I'm just going to make money. You know, it's like, I no longer have this sort of, sincere interest in it because though like one of the key things that I, I thought had something to it ended up just being nothing. So that's that was uh, that was Mosley's take and I don't think any I don't think anybody that we can still learn anything from knew Barker as well as Mosley did. So um I think that's uh that I think that's interesting because just trying to pinpoint exactly when Barker goes from sort of the guy who investigated Flatwoods and Brush Creek uh, and wrote They Knew Too Much to the guy who popular uf- ufological legend says Barker is with the straith letter and the the other hoaxing and the uh, the 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 outrageously sort of fabricated stories and 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 Bender and the Men in Black are are right in the middle of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely and this, uh, you know, what started as this mythos kind of expands into account after account after account of people, in, you know, experiencing and encountering these very strange figures that approach them and tell them to stop, um, you know, doing what they're doing. Um, I'm not sure when Maury Island comes into the the whole conversation. I know it wasn't in like, you know, it wasn't before 19... 19- 56 that Maury Island had that reputation of being the quote unquote first men in black case. But I think what's interesting about Maury Island is that some of it, some of what happened at Maury Island is kind of like 
propped up with FBI documents concerning mm-hmm. Harold Dahl's son and what happened to him in Montana, like how he ended up there. Um, you know, not only that, but you also have, a, you know, a government plane that uh, went down in the um, in the woods in Washington. And uh, there's a lot of mysterious stuff around that. And at the center of it is. Kenneth Arnold, who became kind of the first UFO investigator, he's the first right, guy. He's right. the first guy to experience it, and then him and E.J. Smith are kind of the first UFO investigators, which is uh, always interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, at Maury Island, it, it really does sort of get um, sort of retroactively made into a Men in Black story because it's, it's talked about in in They Knew Too Much, and 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 there is this sort of government sort of hush up angle in the story but it's such a it have you done a maury island episode because it is it is such a convoluted yes sort of thing yeah uh, anything involving fred chrisman is yes. is going to just end up being not just a, it's not a rabbit hole it's an entire warren of you know rabbit holes uh that is that is absolutely confusing i know when i did mine it, it was it was just like i it's like can i stop can i just like say I'm not going to do this because I I'm tired. Right. <laughs> this is very very complicated. But uh, but yeah, it absolutely um gets sort of sort of put in with that. And I, I think it it's a it's a spiritually connected men in black story. It, it's it's part of the the wider phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like there are those infamous cases that kind of became a little bit larger than life that uh you know, in the UFO community kind of achieved a certain level of notoriety on their own. The the Jack Robertson case, for instance, because, you know, Timothy Green Beckley was able to take a photo of, you know, a mysterious guy looking out from an alleyway, which is it's interesting. But uh, again, you got to consider the source on that one. Nothing against Timothy Green Beckley, but, uh, you know, um, sensational at times i have i own quite a few of his books (laughs) oh yeah me too me too um yeah i have one right here on my desk um the ufo silencers yes it's 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 good stuff but uh he it's sometimes a mixed bag yes um and the and the only other person to have ever captured a photograph is alan greenfield um who like is the lesser known you uh men in black photograph but um kind of a portly individual definitely looking the mib type wearing a you know fedora um you know that that is what it is i like alan <laughs> he's, he's yeah he's, yeah he's one of the best follows on twitter <laughs> yes yeah alan, i um i i i've yeah alan's alan's great um yes. he's a fun guy to talk to um but, but yeah yeah every photo of a men in black i've seen um the the two or three that are out there looks almost too much like what you expect a man in black to be i, I don't mm-hmm. know um but i mean it, it it's who knows i mean it, it's possibly the easiest possible thing to stage if i'm being if i'm being cynical um, right you don't have to you know hide the string holding the pie plate up into the sky you just have to put on a hat and uh and, and sunglasses and a tie and you're a man in black exactly and i mean if you're ed walters all you got to do is make a model and you know maybe fudge some plans about it and <laughs> you know fabricate an mib 
incident and you're good. You're good to go. Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and, and there are a couple others. Um, Robert Richardson's 1967 uh, encounter in which uh, he hit a UFO with his car and received two subsequent uh, encounters from the men in black in which they threatened his wife and, and, and such uh, because he did come away with a piece of metal, which he sent to the University of Colorado during the uh, conduct committee and had it tested, uh, which uh, didn't really come back with anything. But it, it's an interesting account um, regardless. And uh, the, uh, I think what's interesting about 1967 is uh, whatever it is about Ohio, people were hitting UFOs and aliens with their cars. So, you know, yes. they have yes. a problem with that. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think the other really well-known case is that of Shane Sovar in Niagara Falls with that video footage from about a decade ago now in which, you know, he, he uh, uh, I believe uh, if I because I did find him on, on LinkedIn, he still works at that hotel. Really? <laughs> yes. Wow. Yes. Uh, he was uh, I think he was in charge of security that night that uh, he saw a UFO and uh, he, uh, I think, grabbed one of the security guards that was out there. They both saw this UFO over Niagara Falls. And then, you know, a week later, there are these strange men that come in. They get video footage of it. They are looking for Shane Sovar and uh, the uh, audio footage of him describing, you know, people's encounters with these people that had walked in these men in black or as just like eerie because like his voice, he seems like he's about to like crack or something, but uh, it's uh, that's probably the only other classic case. So we're going to get into some maybe less well-known stories of the men in black here. We've each, we've each got some stories that we're bringing to the table here, but uh, uh, the first one that we're going to talk about is the Carlos Antonio de los Santos Montiel case from uh, Mexico. And uh, this is from May, May 3rd, 1975. It's the early morning and Carlos is headed uh, for Mexico City from Zayuantanejo, which is the place that Andy Dufresne goes to in the Shawshank Redemption. So um, if you want to know where that is, it's it's connected to a, uh, you know, UFO uh, escort, we'll say. And that's uh, that's <laughs> the best way to call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but he he left the Benito uh, Juarez International Airport in his Piper PA-24 plane early that morning. And shortly after passing a VHF omnidirectional radio range beacon, um, he had this feeling like he was being watched. You know, the kind of the typical thing when people... Uh, have these UFO encounters and mm -hmm. out of the corner of his eye, you know, he, he, something catches his attention. It was, and it was a, uh, as he looked over, it was a long dull gray object. And it was, uh, he said that the shape was like vaguely, it looked like a deflated football. Um, it's <laughs> three to four meters or about nine to 13 feet long. And, you know, on top of this flattened portion, there's kind of this cabin, on it and it uh, looks like it has like polarized glass on it and after catching sight of this on his left wing 
There's another one that appears on his right. And then there's a third that appears in front of his cockpit. So, you know, quickly that object that appeared in front kind of just dives underneath his plane. So Carlos, trying to get away from these objects, decides that he's going to push the nose of his plane down at a 45 degree angle to avoid collision with any of these things. And when he did, he just heard the loud scraping sound underneath the fuselage, making him which think you, that. Which you don't want to hear. No, on a plane. no, not not at all. Like this is, um, we're in shit your pants mode here. Because, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I nobody nobody needs that. So, uh, seemingly makes contact with this UFO underneath his plane, and um, you know, he he's desperately afraid now and he tries to write the plane and he tries to you know move it but at that point uh, he didn't have any control over his plane so it actually started to gain altitude kind of on its own and you know carlos he started to cry in this cockpit he's calling to the radio tower who like is instructing him hey why don't you decelerate and he can't he can't (laughs) do anything (laughs) so uh this encounter takes place over the course of about 18 minutes and eventually these objects they uh disengage and they fly off towards this uh volcano and after regaining control of the plane he took note of the fact that his landing gear was kind of damaged so um you know from the from the impact and as he was coming into the airport when he finally made it, he did about 11 laps uh, around it because uh, he was desperately trying to get his landing gear to come down. So while he's doing these laps, he's got the screwdriver underneath the plane and he eventually is able to get his wheels to come down. Um, so he he lands and, and I think what's interesting here is that as he as he's coming down, um, he actually jumps out of the plane before the engine shuts down. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, uh, he basically he's running up the runway. This ambulance eventually catches up with him and uh, they put him in. They give him some sedatives to calm him down. Doctors uh, found nothing wrong with him. They thought that maybe he had suffered from hypoxia, which is basically what uh, Thomas Mantell. Um, mm-hmm. oh, that's what happened to Thomas Mantell when he right. pursued the UFO right. in 48. He climbed too high, suffered hypoxia. But uh, there's really no evidence that he did. So there were these two radar operators in the control tower that day. And they confirmed kind of this odd observation. So Julio Cesar and Terrian Diaz and Emilio Estanol Lopez, they observed this kind of like fast moving object on their screen, you know, departing away from where Carlos was at about the time that they disengaged and went towards that volcano. So, uh, you know, his his plane did show clear signs of an impact that something had indeed hit it. Uh, And according to um, tower operators, there was another plane in the area that uh, was uh, owned by the Ministry of Agriculture, who actually did fly closer to uh, Carlos's 
uh, area, and they did see an object, like more than one object around his plane. So, wow, there is confirmation here. So there's visual confirmation from two different planes and radar stuff. Yes. Yep. Wow. That's 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 impressive. Yeah. This is this is one of those cases that's uh, it's interesting. It's it's very interesting. So, Carlos started um, experiencing MIB activity not long after the incident. Uh, he had actually it had made the press, and he was starting to make TV uh, appearances. Uh, there was one uh, for a show called Un Mundo Nos uh, Vigilia which is uh, a world is watching us. Um, and, and Carlos claimed that on the way to the studio, he was intercepted by two black cars on the road and four men wearing black suits. They looked, you know, all identical. They had blonde hair. Uh, they were very white, like a, like a pale white, and they had no facial hair. So with a menacing hmm. mechanical monotone, one of the men stuck uh his head inside Carlos's car window and he said if you appreciate your life and that of your family don't say anything so wow we've got some threats um and you know Pedro Ferres uh the the host of the show eventually you know convinced him you know it was an empty threat you know nothing happens and, and stuff so he met with J Allen Hynek in Mexico City for about 11 hours wow. and uh yeah they 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 have this big huge meeting and they they essentially go back in to have a second meeting like uh you know and and like convince him to go you know go do a tv appearance and the men in black again intercept him only this time in the the lobby of the hotel and they say shut it up don't say anything again. So that's kind of where that particular story ends. So again, this rare kind of follow-up appearance from the men in black. And I guess Carlos talked about his story for years after that. He was invited to the first international UFO Congress in 1977 to tell his story. Um, and uh, there, there is one interesting uh, feature to this. So uh, it was Red Pill Junkie that recommended covering this case for this episode. So shout out to him. Uh, he was on an episode, like one of our first episodes when we started posting regularly last year. And um, prior, prior to him leaving Zewantanejo, Carlos apparently had electrical trouble and he speculated that perhaps the UFOs were actually helping him in his problem. So you got that element there, but that that in essence is the Carlos Antonio de los Santos uh, Montiel case. That is, it's an interesting case, and it's not one that I was uh, that I was familiar with. The name sounds familiar, but uh, mm -hmm. I wasn't I wasn't you know I didn't know the details of of the sighting, especially which is which is like I said, really impressive. Is this this has to be one of the rare cases of of sort of pale blonde men in black right? yes yes but yeah the, the the blonde hair and sort of the, the the pale no facial hair is a 
is a different look. But the the mechanical monotone voice is is very much, especially like the later waves, the sort of seventies waves of um, Men in Black appearances. You, you you get that kind of otherworldly you know sort of thing where you, you you kind of wonder if this is some kind of android, right? Mm-hmm. Is this uh, is this Mister Data from Star Trek: The Next <laughs> Generation? You know, it's got that you know without the emotion ship or something like that right absolutely so uh why don't you hit us with one of your stories now yeah um this one this one is interesting this is in in, uh, july of 1972 and it took place in florida uh, arcadia florida a woman named uh patricia or pat hyde was at a drive-in movie with her mom and there was a ufo that appeared overhead and it wasn't sort of just hovering right over the cars and um and, and multiple people saw it. It was it was disturbing to them. People freaked out, and um, and and you know people had nightmares afterward. And Pat decides to sort of look into this, uh, and she she writes about the case to a um, an unnamed national UFO organization, probably well, 1972. It would have been APRO or NICAP or I don't know MUFON. Meh. I think MUFON was still the Midwest. UFO network at that right. point, but um, she starts talking to witnesses um, in in town who might have seen things. She's keeping uh, keeping a notebook and and sort of she's investigating this herself. Um, and you know she talks to witnesses who said you know this this light this object hovering above their house um, made them so scared. He thought guy thought he was having a heart attack. Uh, called the police. So she she's looking into all of the angles of this. And then one day there's a man on the street in front of their house. And and he said he wanted to talk to her and that he was a reporter who knew what had happened and was also interested in, uh, in, in UFOs. And, uh, in, in, uh, in Pat Hyde's words, uh, he started talking about all these strange things, UFO propulsion and so forth. He told me he could teach me how to build a UFO and invited me to his house for a demonstration. And she thought he's, she says she thought he was kind of a nut and, and felt kind of leery of them. She didn't even want to shake his hand. Um, she was very, uh, very sort of scared because she, she had no idea how this guy had learned of her interest in uh, in, in UFOs. Um, he he claimed that uh, that Pat's mother had run into his wife uh, at the uh, at or had run into him at the supermarket and knew his wife, but she doesn't believe that story. Uh, and and Hyde believed that the man was was sent there to, in her words, uh, freak her out. And uh, she said, "I got the feeling from him that I should keep my mouth shut." And then. A really weird thing happened um, a little while later. The guy visited her several times, and uh, then after that, she was in her backyard, and there was a car driving by, a black car. It slowed down as it passed the house. It had tinted windows. She couldn't see inside, and um, the it came around the block again, sort of gunning the engine in a sort of sort of threatening a uh, threatening way, and uh, she sort of says she was uh, transfixed by it. She couldn't look away from it. And she heard the phone ring and that sort of broke this spell that she had over this car sort of sort of staring at it. And uh, she believes that the car had um, had evil uh, had evil intent. And so the phone rings. Right. So she goes and, and it's like, oh, OK, snaps out of it, goes and answers the phone. She was she 
picks up the phone, says hello, and it's the man who had originally seen her in the street screaming at her, what are you trying to do to me? Why did you send those men out to run me off the road? So this weird guy says, there's guys after me that try to run me off the road. So Pat has to calm him down and, you know, and, and like that. So he's freaking out. So now Pat is trying to get to the bottom of this. She drives over to the guy's house. Uh, she has his um, has his uh, has his address. The place is locked up. The neighbor says nobody's been around the property for a while. She just spoken to him on the phone, but the address he had given her was um, was fake. And so years go on. Um, years go by. Pat leaves home. She was she was young at the time, living at home. She joins the Navy, gets out of the Navy, moves to Washington, D.C., gets a job working for the FBI as uh, in, in the sort of uh, the typist pool, the secretarial pool. And um, one night she's, you know, she's interested in UFOs, but she's not like an, an active UFO buff or anything like that. Late one night, she's laying in bed in her apartment. There's a knock on the door. She gets up, cracks the door, and um, she says, there's this man. But the, So she wasn't disturbed initially until the man just says to her, Miss Hyde, you will stop investigating flying saucers. Um, and uh, she says, you must be crazy because I'm not the type of person to be frightened easily. And then he said, I'm telling you, you will be. You know, so it, it's <laughs> very creepy. She slams the door. Um that he was wearing a dark blue suit, a dark blue or or um, black, and she said that his eyes were slanted, but but more deeply slanting than any actual person she'd ever met, almost in a in a not not human way. Um, she's freaked out. She eventually, quit, not eventually, but pretty soon after, she quits her job with the FBI, and then things keep going for her. Um, a little while later, she's walking down the street when she is uh, somebody grabs her purse. She th- figured she was uh, she was being mugged, but he didn't run off after grabbing her purse. He just turned it upside down, dumped everything out, and um, she asked what he was doing, and he said, "It's none of your business." And he uh, searched through everything, and eventually he found the notebook that she had with her in which she kept the notes about that sighting, that first sighting in Florida, and he ripped it all up right in front of her there on the street. Um, So she didn't know uh, who he was. He said he was a policeman, but he wouldn't show any kind of identification. And then somebody else comes up behind her, grabs her arms, and pins him behind her back. So now she's confronting the guy who tore up the notebook, and somebody else shows up to restrain her. She is shoved in a van, and she's fighting them off, and she realizes she's being abducted. They're wearing dark clothing. Nope, there's other people in the van. None of them are saying anything. Um, it, it's it's a very, very bizarre story. Uh, she thinks about seven hours later, uh, the van stops. She's dra- at, at, a, at a, a building of some kind. She's dragged down the hallway. Um, and she says that, that one of the men tells her that she's in a hospital because, quote, she had tried to commit suicide by jumping out the window at the FBI building. So they're committing her to a psychiatric facility with this made up story about a suicide attempt. Um, it, it's absolutely bizarre. She's uh, she's she's forced to take medication. She's locked in a little room. Um, she it's it's she she doesn't know where she is. She sees a a doctor who tells her, you will admit that you tried to kill yourself or you will never 
leave here. It goes on for days and days and days. And um, finally, she she says that um, that uh, she can call her mom. And the doctor says, your mom can come and get you, but only if you promise not to do any more UFO research. And so she says, okay, I won't do that ever again. And um, her mom comes and picks her up. And then later she goes back to what the address had been. And it was just a vacant building. Um, it, it's it's one of the strangest Men in Black stories I, I think I've I've ever come across. Uh, I found it in um, initially I found it in um, Jim Keith's case book on the Men in Black, but uh, but he got it from um, Tim Beckley's 1990 UFO Silencers book. And and the impression I get from Beckley's book is that I I, I don't know if if he got the story directly from uh, Patricia Hyde or if, if it had been somewhere else, but um, it, it's just very strange, almost almost like cinematically intense in some right. ways. Right. Um, also bold of any person to, you know, snatch a woman's purse and tell her it's none of her business while he's doing it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, 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 it's it's and I, I guess if you are sort of able to pull off the, you know, I'm a cop and I'm searching you and you can sort of maybe count on the fact that somebody might be, you know, sort of stunned enough to to not, you know, immediately you know, demand to see a warrant or something mm-hmm. like that. But, but yeah, it, it's, it's very strange. It, it, it is very bold. And it's one of those things that's almost kind of like, you know, a, a, a government agent wouldn't do it like this. Right. right. It, it, so, but the, the whole, it, the whole thing is, is just, I mean, I, 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 I try not to, to sort of rate the credibility of of stories but um the whole the whole thing of 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 being dragged to a psych facility and imprisoned until you know you're able to leave and and not knowing you know not well not really knowing why you're there or or what's going on and then later going back and you know there's there hasn't been anything here in years you know sort of the, the the vacant building it's it's got a real sort of twilight zone outer limits kind of quality to it. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a good, it's a good story. Um, it's a, it's a good, good men in black story. And if I were to read this as a young impressionable person that this would have, I'm glad I didn't read this in 1990 cause, cause eighth grade me would have been freaked out. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, sometimes stories are enough to say maybe i shouldn't look into this and uh yeah we'll we'll just uh put that book away for now but yeah that that is definitely up there with sensational men in black stories <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's 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 one of the it's one of the weirdest weirdest ones ever and i, I first read this book years ago and i'm like wow cuz it's not often that i don't i don't know i don't know about anybody else out there about you, but the idea of, of, you know, being told that, you know, I am not psychologically fit to be in the outside world and knowing that that's not true, that, that, that's sort of like unjust psychiatric inpatient imprisonment. That's, that's, that's a freaky thing for me. I don't know. It's just like particularly freaky for whatever reason. Um, it's nothing that's ever happened to me, but, um, just, just that insistence that, you know, no, there is nothing wrong with me. Please let me go. Oh, afraid we can't do that. You mm-hmm. know, that's, 
that's much more it, it's much more concrete uh, a threat or a danger than just like you know there will be consequences if you don't shut up about the ufos it's like action yeah. was actually taken yeah and uh uh, this oh man I, i'm probably gonna have nightmares this evening but <laughs> you know that that's uh that's what we bring you here folks uh, we, we bring you the nightmare stories and uh th- this particular story is one that i i read a few years ago as i was reading uh the ufo experience a scientific inquiry by jl and heineck for the first time and it's like it's in there and you tend to wonder why the hell it's only two paragraphs. Uh, but it's like the most sensational case that they're that I think JL and Heineck has probably ever written about. And um, uh, to this day, we don't know a lot about the witnesses uh, or uh, really anything else. But um, he followed up on this with an interview like a full interview that was published in um, uh, the the book that he co-wrote with Jacques Vallée after this. Um, oh, what's it called? I f- forget what the heck it's called. I forgot to write it down, but um, yeah, I, I The Edge of Reality. Yes. Yeah, the ed- yes. It, it, which is a very strange book uh, if you read it, because a lot of it is interviews with Vallée and Heineck and with other people, but uh, there is a lengthy chapter devoted to interviewing the main witness of this case. Uh, And years later, and I don't know how the name came forward because it's not presented in the edge of reality, uh, a a gentleman by the name of Paul Miller. And uh, this uh, event took place on a harsh November evening in 1961. And, Paul Miller and his three buddies, they were on their way home after a hunting trip. Uh, They were not far from Minot, North Dakota. And suddenly, something they described as a quote-unquote glowing silo landed in a field nearby. Um, And, like, the glowing silo things is is something that I've seen before. Uh, There is... Uh, a couple of cases that uh, I think Jerome Clark wrote about in which the people described silo-like objects. There is uh, one particular incident from Aveyron, France in 1967, I believe it is, in which this family had like multiple events that took place on their property. And what they would see is these like uh, kind of large... Uh, balls of light that would kind of roll around their property. But at one point they also described this large kind of silo looking object that these balls would gather around at times. And in this particular case, back to Minot here uh, in the silo, they, they first believed that it was kind of a, it was an airplane that had crashed landed into this field, but um, they quickly changed their minds once they got out and started walking like it was it was not a great night it was raining and stuff but uh they um they approach this glowing silo and they see this human these two humanoids that had stepped out and they were uh kind of walking in a uh Paul Miller said it was like a menacing kind of way. So he pulled out his gun and just shot one of them. Um, and it apparently injured it. 
they both fled back to this you know tall silo and the object uh disappeared but um Miller and his uh, and his friends had kind of like a they claimed to have like a blackout and they lost track of like three hours or something like that. And then, um, you know, finding that they decided just kind of not to tell their story. So the next day when Miller arrived at his office, he worked for the Air Force. Uh, he was visited by three men wearing black suits they said that they were from the government and they began asking questions about his encounter. Um, that, and, you know, Miller later recalled, quote, that it seemed like they knew everything about me and they probably knew my answers, end quote. And instead, it, it seemed that they were, you know, they were very interested in Miller's clothes and they actually made him get his clothes. Uh, they actually followed him to his house so that he could get his clothes. And um, the the men made such a threatening impression that he, he didn't tell his story for many years until uh, he actually told it to just uh, uh, J. Allen Hynek. But like if you read the UFO experience, it's you know, consider it's one of the close encounter of the third kind cases that he includes in the book because, you know, he was very stringent upon uh, the cases that he championed. He always wanted multiple witness cases, you know, with good witnesses, good observations and stuff. And uh, this is one of them. And yet it's like two paragraphs long in it. But yeah, uh, it's one of the more sensational cases that he ever worked on. Yeah, it's it, it's 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 almost like a little tease, you know. It's like it's like, wait, can we go back to the close because that's you know a very interesting thing that they wanted to to know about to know about the close, and it kind of makes me wonder if this had been you know a case where there might have been some sort of radiation or or contamination of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, it, yeah, it's it's interesting, but um, yeah, very very brief sort of uh, sort of summation. There from Hynek. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so what what case do you have for us next? Uh, well, this, this this next one is just a little a little short one. Speaking of of cases that are that are or, or stories that are so short that you just want to say, wait, wait, can we go back to like all of those details? And then there there aren't uh, there aren't really any. Um, this is uh, I haven't I don't have a copy of the original book, but this is from an account by Scott Corrales who wrote about this in a chapter of a Ken Thomas book, I think Popular Alienation. And uh, it was in uh, Vilha Verde, Brazil, in August of 1969. And uh, Corrales relates a story of this This quote is, is just like, I, I just wish it was more precise. An alarming number of children <laughs> disappeared <laughs> and then came back a few days later. And it's like, wait, could, could you expand on that part just a little bit more, right? But um, Corrales described that one of the children, a girl, said that she was that they were driven in in uh, in black cars by uh, men wearing all black to a strange airplane. And uh, this, this girl says the man offered her a ride in the airplane, and she started crying. So the man in black gave her some candy and took her home. And that's the story. Um, it's just, there's like, I'm not, every single sentence there needs much more explanation. If I would, I, and I 
did some Googling around quickly and I could not find um, really anything else about this about this story. So if anyone out there knows about the Vila Verde, Brazil, um, alarming number of children disappearing for a few days case, um, get in touch because that that sounds like something <laughs> I need to know more about. And um, I don't know that just, you know, abduction of, of children and then they're brought back and given candy. There's there's all sorts of weirdness, uh, weirdness going on here. But that, that's the thing with some of these, um, you know, compilations of men in black stories, whether it's uh, Redfern or uh, Beckley or Jim Keith's book from uh, 96 or 97. Uh, there, some of these stories are, are just, you know, tantalizingly brief and and without much uh, without much detail and um, you kind of wonder what's you know what there might be more of and you kind of wonder if this is just a weird story where people happen to be wearing black so let's put them in a, uh, a men in black story but I just I just thought that one was um, I don't want to say fun fun's the wrong word for um, child stealing but um, I, I thought it was an interesting one. What I think what's interesting here is that I, I found this account yesterday. I was scrolling through the Humcat uh, for 1970, the humanoid catalog mm-hmm. that David Webb uh, helped to compile. And there is an interesting account from Mexico, from Veracruz, Mexico. Uh, Senor Ricardo Gutierrez was walking in the forest with his six-year-old nephew Arturo when the child disappeared. Exhaustive searches by the villagers failed to find him and the uncle was charged with the child's murder. While he was awaiting trial 33 days after the disappearance, little Arturo turned up at his home, well-fed and none the worse for his disappearance. When asked where he had been, he replied, "'Living with the little men.'" They gave me food and milk with honey in it. We played a lot of games. I was very happy. There was a local belief that in the in the little man uh, called Chanakes, I probably uh, butchering the pronunciation of that, but it's C-H-A-N-E-Q-U-E-S, who liked to entice children away to play with them. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So... Kids disappearing. What the heck? Yeah. So and and you know little people and 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 taking the children. You know that's a, a sort of classic, uh, classic sort of folkloric trope. There. It's a classic Faye move for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for this next one, I, I want to revisit the Herbert Hopkins Men in Black encounter here a little bit because. Um, it may not be what we expected it to be, but the Herbert Hopkins men in black case is kind of, it's, uh, considering what it's connected to the case that it's connected to, it took on a life of its own to where it kind of, uh, supplanted the case that he was investigated, investigating, which was the abduction of a man named David Stevens, which, uh, we've done an episode on it's this wild abduction uh that took place like 10 days before travis walton's abduction in which he and uh, his roommate glenn gray they had heard this like explosion outside of their trailer and they went outside they got the sudden urge to go for a drive out of nowhere and 
they end up uh, piling into their car and heading down the road. They lost control of their vehicle. It was taken over by an alleged UFO, and they were bringing to they were brought to this field where they saw a UFO rise up from it. Uh, and later, David Stevens would recount having an abduction like experience. Uh, with beings that he described as having like mushroom shaped heads and big wraparound eyes, not really grays, but like the gray arc archetype is kind of there. And uh, there's a lot more that happens. But uh, Herbert Hopkins is the man that investigated this encounter with um, uh, I forget exactly uh, Shirley Fickett, who was involved in um I forget exactly if it's like the International UFO Bureau or something like that. But uh, um, so nearly a year after investigating this case, it was September 11th, 1976. Uh, Herbert Hopkins, he gets a phone call at home. Uh, his wife and uh, her his son and, their, and the kids that were in the house, they had gone to I think to like an outdoor movie or something like that. So at about 8 p.m., he receives a phone call from a man claiming to be the vice president of the New Jersey UFO Research Organization, which uh, I don't think existed. But uh, regardless, he was calling about the David Stevens case. So Hopkins was alone uh, and uncharacteristically, he agreed to meet with him. He claimed later that he didn't know what came over him, but uh, he just agreed that, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll meet with you. So uh, he hangs up the phone and he, and he uh, as he does, he starts to hear these footsteps coming up the the uh, the stairs to his office. And the moment that he turns on the light, he sees this very strange looking man walking up the stairs now this is 1976 this isn't a time when you know cell phones were a thing so how the hell did this happen so quickly <laughs> where was he <laughs> where was he calling from so uh it, the impossibility of it all it was a bit unnerving but it didn't deter hopkins who just uncharacteristically opened the door and just let the man in um he described him as uh, five foot eight inches tall, weighing probably about 140 pounds. Um, and he uh, th my favorite quote, he looked like an undertaker. So, um, you know, now all I can think of is uh, the undertaker from the WWE just coming up and <laughs> wanting to talk about UFOs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he's dressed all in black with the exception of a white shirt uh, underneath. And he wore a black uh, derby hat as well. So uh, his clothes were very loose fitting on him, which kind of made him uh, look very strange. He described him kind of like a, a mannequin in a store. But uh, he his uh, clothing was crisp. The, the creases in his pants were perfect. And, you know, when the man asked to sit down the suit didn't wrinkle at all it was just uh you know we all dream of that we all dream of these perfect <laughs> clothes so <laughs> when the man sat down he removed his hat and he revealed that he had no hair at all it didn't even look like he had hair follicles uh from the way that he described it uh he also didn't have eyebrows or eyelashes 
and his face was like really smooth and you know again getting back to that undertaker appearance he, he was just like dead white in color his lips were uh, a stark red in contrast to it though um and he described his eyes as unremarkable that's <laughs> <laughs> what everybody wants to hear Yes, absolutely. Uh, so he inquired about the Stevens case in this kind of expressionless, monotone voice. It lacked accents. Uh, it he didn't really have a lot of sentence structure to it, or uh, any like real phraseology. Kind of like uh, so. Uh, I work in a nursing home, and we get visits from the State Department of Health, and. One of the tactics that they use is that they'll be very vague and oblivious to what they want. They'll give you a random statement and expect you to kind of complete the sentence in a way. And this encounter reminds me of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, uh, yes, this man who I'm just going to say works for the State Department of Health now, um, you know, he's talking about the Hopkins case. And at, at one point... The man kind of wipes his mouth and reveals that he was actually wearing lipstick and he revealed this kind of small mouth, like very small, barely opened when he spoke. And after Hopkins had divulged everything he knew, the man said simply, quote, that's just what I thought. And he went on further to describe Kind of the contents of Hopkins' left pocket, um, which had a dime and a penny in it. And he instructed Hopkins to take out one of the coins and place it in the palm of his hand. So he placed the penny in his hand and he then uh, moved it uh, out toward uh, Hopkins. And he says, don't look at me, look at the coin. Uh, And this brand new penny like just minted practically you know the day before it began to change colors from a bright silver to a light blue and he just instructs the man he instructs hopkins keep looking and he says that the coin becomes blurry almost as if it's like hard to see and then the coin changed into a fuzzy ball until it became vaporous and gradually faded away um I want to know where I can learn that kind of magic. That is cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Hopkins, he's, you know, he's impressed. He's like, hey, that's a neat trick. And and this eerie feeling kind of overcame him. And he asked the man to bring the coin back. And um, he says, neither you nor anyone on this plane will ever see that coin again. <laughs> that's that's so fun just yes yeah Uh, he then asked dr hopkins if he knew why barney hill died hopkins didn't really know but the man had an answer for him quote barney hill died because he had no heart just as you no longer have a coin (laughs) i love that yeah so he told herbert that Uh, He knew of his tape recordings of the hypnosis sessions and uh, the correspondence regarding the case. And he told him to get rid of it or he would suffer the same fate as Barney Hill. And at a certain point, the man's speech started to slow. And as he steadied himself while he was standing up, he basically said, you know, my energy is running low. 
must go now goodbye but he the, the words were kind of like uh, uh the letters were stretched out so uh the man gripped the railing as he faced uh, as he raced down the stairs and he walked in a slow unsteady manner down hopkins driveway and a bright light uh was kind of beginning to creep down the driveway as he described it uh and it seemed almost like the headlights of a car, but the strange man disappeared into the light before the light disappeared itself. So uh, a very weird account here, but it would continue and it would involve Herbert Hopkins son, John, and his daughter-in-law, Maureen, who um, were visited by a pair of odd people, a man and a woman, not really like your typical men in black types. But um, a couple of weeks later on September 24th, 1976 at about 7:30 PM. So we're nearly at the same time frame. Um, uh, Maureen and John were home when they received a phone call from a man who called himself bill post. And he claimed to be a friend of a friend who knew John and wanted to know if they were alone. Yeah, which is, you know, anybody asking that, that you're not going to get murdered at all. That's uh, yeah. So uh, he asked if they could he could come down for a kind of friendly chat. So uh, the man's voice he, it sounded kind of distorted. There was a weird buzzing sound on the line, but they ultimately agreed. And John met them in a parking lot of a nearby King shopping center. Um, and uh, they met up with them and, they, you know, so he could follow him back to his house. And um, interestingly enough, they instead of following him, they took their own route, um, a faster route which suggested that he, they knew where John lived. Their te- their license plate said temporary New Jersey 1975, which is not a valid plate, but <laughs> um, they got separated. The two of them got separated because they were just, tr- these weirdos were driving really fast. And at a certain point, uh, they seemed to get the hint that they, you know, that they really knew the way to John's house. So both of these individuals were, about the same height, uh, the man had an out-of-date hairstyle, uh, although we're not exactly told what it is. The woman uh, the woman was more out of place. Um, they, it, they described her as having like a like a pot belly and a sunken chest. Um, mm. And she had very pronounced red lips as well, kind of harkening back to Herbert's sighting. But uh, they both walked in with very unusual gait with these short steps. I keep thinking of like maybe like a penguin or something like that. But um, when the man entered, Maureen was watching a Jacques Cousteau kind of program. And the man remarked that our submarine technology was very elementary. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. Yeah, and when he asked them uh, if they'd like to sit down, the man turned to the woman and stated matter-of-factly, yes, Jane, I guess we can sit down for a little while, can't we? And uh, (laughs) when they asked uh, if they wanted a drink, the man stated clearly, we don't drink, take drugs, or anything. And uh, John clarified, meaning sodas, uh, and they both accepted some uh, Coca-Cola. And in conversation, the man kept talking about his father, Herbert, and asked if he talked 
to him much and what they talked about. Um, and he also seemed to know about John's purchase of a radio transmitter he had on his property. And he was kind of unimpressed with his use of it. <laughs> uh, and he was just like puzzled when John told him that he was that he played music for a living. And the the man strangely uh, like the weird part is, is he kept fondling the woman in front of them. Which was just like, I, it's so, it, the whole thing is so weird. So that is weird. Yes. That is weird. Uh, uh, when John, you know, went out to take a phone call, the man asked <laughs> Maureen how she was quote unquote built. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, failing to understand the question, she simply said that she was built like any other girl. He asked, he asked her if she had nude photos of herself, so she, so he could see how she was built. <laughs> what the hell? Weird. Yeah. That's very strange. <laughs> yes. Um, in when um, when John returned from uh, his phone call, the man told him that. He was going to New Jersey, uh, which uh, he did have plans to do. Like John was headed to New Jersey, I think, that weekend. Um, and he basically told him, um, ignore the route that the automobile club gave you. And he gives some new directions. And um, later, John found out that the routes that he'd been uh, instructed to go on were discontinued. <laughs> so, Ooh. yeah, sending them the wrong way. But uh, the... Uh, the woman that was with this guy stood up and stated that she wanted to leave. So the man also stood up and he was kind of, it was weird. He wasn't able to move for whatever reason. So uh, after further coaxing failed to kind of move him, uh, I, I, I don't really understand what that meant uh, when they said it, but uh, it was weird. But the woman asked John to help him move. So after several minutes, they were finally able to leave and they were saying these swift goodbyes. And a few weeks later, the man called and apologized for anything inappropriate that they did. And uh, apparently John had trouble sleeping after this incident, which uh, I have no problem admitting I probably would. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 Very, very weird, creepy stuff. So this um, these particular men in black portions were investigated by um, uh, Bertold Schwartz in um, in the 70s. And uh uh, he he apparently didn't have some uh, information that would come forth in 2008 from Herbert Hopkins' nephew, Howard Hopkins, who was a renowned writer in Maine. Uh, and he posted a, a, a series of uh, a blogs about his uncle and his cousin. So the story of Herbert Hopkins had initially gained prominence in the Star tabloid. And it was included in Time Life's uh, Mystery of the Unknown series. Oh, yeah. 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 So from Nomar, Nomar Slavik's book, uh, Otherworldly Encounters, Evidence of UFO Sightings and Abductions, quote, Howard explained in his blog that his uncle, though well-meaning, spiraled out of control during the time frame when he reported the Man in Black encounter. He said that Dr. Hopkins was going through a tumultuous time in his life and had begun drinking heavily. Also, Dr. Hopkins was fascinated by 1950s sci-fi pulp stories. And this is where the doubt 
in the account begins to take shape. Howard wrote, quote, My uncle was an avid reader of 50s horror and sci-fi comics, paperbacks and old pulps, and minimal research will turn up the parallels. My uncle was unfortunately a fantasy-prone individual. Craved the center of attention and limelight, and on a base level, he sometimes just made things up, no matter how hyperbolic, to top everyone else. As brilliant as he was in many areas, however, he was unskilled at fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He said that his uncle drank a lot during much of the 1970s and 80s, spending the evenings with a magnum of wine. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And told of waking several times in the pre-dawn hours to the sound of his uncle stumbling up the stairs and yelling at his dog. So, you know, this... uh, uh, Herbert Hopkins had some issues apparently, yeah. but, um, you know, the, uh, Howard continued that, um, one of Dr. Hopkins children, John had an encounter with the men in black along with his wife, Maureen, as mentioned, uh, Unfortunately, their lives took on tragedies of their own. John's encounter began just as oddly as his father's when John received a phone call from someone who claimed to know him who wanted to visit. Uh, uh, John went to pick up this person along with his female companion. He did not recognize them, but brought them back to his home regardless. What followed was a bizarre series of questioning and inappropriate sexual behavior. Howard writes, quote, the truth is, again, pretty obvious and simple. But unfortunately, mixed with family sadness. At the time, we were we kids weren't privy to what went on there. But later, John told me. John and Maureen were swingers. It was fairly common for other couples to be coming and going about the place. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, according to Howard, Maureen ended up shooting and killing John in their backyard in Florida when they later moved there. So. Wow. Yeah. That took a yeah. turn. Yeah, you, um, you, 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 didn't, you never see that one coming. But no. it, it's one of the strangest Men in Black stories, and it, it's, it just seems to be complete and total BS. But uh, the, the David Stevens case is one of my all-time favorite cases, and I've never followed up on the Men in Black stuff. So figured it was time that we do that. But uh, yeah, it turns out the Herbert Hopkins stuff is. <laughs> probably bunk <laughs> wow that is that is that is crazy and, and that yeah. that sort of twist at the end with with the the and, and then she shot him it, yeah. it's or, or later she shot him yeah wow but yeah the uh the, the hopkins story is is such a the, the coin and then the the barney hill heart thing is just that's always stuck in my head yeah from that story yeah yeah um, do you have another one for us? Um, just a little one. Uh, Brad yep. Steiger, who wrote all sorts of things about this, uh, said that in the, the summer of 1968, he got a call from a journalist who was looking into a UFO story and said, would you and John Keel stop writing things that are making people not want to talk to me? And <laughs> and uh, Steiger was a little confused. And it turns out this guy said that, yeah, everybody's got these articles by you guys saying that bad things happen to UFO witnesses, so don't talk to anybody. And Steiger is a little concerned and says, well, well, where are they getting these? And it's like, well, there's some, some guys in you know black suits with sunglasses and hats handing them out. 
Well, who are they? Well, they say they're from NICAP. So you've got people, <laughs> men in black, claiming to be from a UFO investigation agency, um, basically trying to scare UFO witnesses into not talking using um, using the names of uh, prominent uh, paranormal writers like John Keel and Brad Steiger. And, and that's sort of a a subgenre of uh, of men in black stories where you've got uh, you've got mystery phone calls and and phones being tapped there's a lot of that going on in uh, in the mothman prophecies right so mm-hmm. um it, it's just this you know it's it's not just about you know threatening people it's about you know creating dissension and confusion within within the ufo uh, within the ufo research community which um which sounds actually like a like a pretty, you know, likely thing or, or a not not unimaginable thing for elements of uh, of of the government to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, th- yeah, it's definitely very prevalent in the Mothman prophecies because you know he talks about how you know his mail is intercepted and. Uh, you know, people claiming that he t- they talked to like, you know, someone saying they, they were John Keel or, uh, you know, I talked to someone who said that they were Gray Barker who said they talked to you. Yeah, it's it's uh, mm-hmm. the the ever present, uh, you know, deception within the, the men in black story. So uh, we're going to end on one here that is uh <laughs> It's 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 weird. Um, But uh, this is from these are the Muscatine County men in black encounters from Iowa. Uh, Several people on social media were sharing these sightings along uh, Iowa Highway 22 in which these folks that they dubbed men in black were along the roadside. And this article was too good not to share. So this is uh, by Kyle Munson of the Des Moines Register from June 22nd, 2016. I curse Mark Zuckerberg as I perch in a weedy ditch along a high, an Iowa Highway 22 just east of town. Although I must admit that the thousands of fireflies twinkling in the humid night air around me do evoke the idyllic rural Iowa summers of my youth. I curse Facebook founder Zuckerberg because without the reach and amplification of his juggernaut digital commons, the so-called men in black prowling local roads here at night probably wouldn't loom so large and be the source of such rampant speculation. If you haven't cruised your Facebook timeline in a couple of days, let me explain. Shadowy figures clad in black trench coats or other dark clothes have been spotted lurking along the roadway or even stepping into the traffic lanes to confront cars in and around Muscatine. Iowa drivers, more accustomed to swerving to avoid a routine skunk or pheasant, have been a little freaked out, to say the least. Rumors include an account of one motorist who stopped on the highway to avoid hitting the men only to get robbed. But those are just rumors that Muscatine County Sheriff C.J. Ryan has been trying to squelch. His office has logged just three official reports among at least twice... Uh, among at least twice as many encounters sprinkled across social media. Nobody apparently has caught enough of a glimpse of the figures to provide a good description. 
in this way, Ryan and his staff fell prey to Facebook, even as they leveraged its popularity. (laughs) (laughs) They got a little more than they bargained for Monday when they made a plea for residents to call 911 if and when they spotted the spooky loiterers who have been seen in multiple areas in, in two different counties. The request is made all the more eye-catching by the sheriff's inclusion of an, il- of an illustration of a green-eyed boogeyman. <laughs> the, <laughs> the post has since been shared more than 1,000 times and spawned countless news stories. Facebook users who probably should have been hard at work at their office computers suddenly became <laughs> arch- armchair detectives and security consultants. <laughs> Uh, people are always more attracted to the post if you use a photo, the sheriff mused, sounding every bit the social media strategist. (laughs) I know that I shouldn't blame the medium for the message. Ultimately, it's the (laughs) overdressed idiot rural pedestrians, not Facebook, who are to blame. Oh. Uh, This article has it all. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But it's far too easy these days to anticipate the range of reaction to such viral oddities, from juvenile humor to blind rage. Of course, somebody threatened to shoot the men if he encountered them, so the sheriff's office deleted that comment. Monica Gonzalez of Muscatine was angry, too. Quote, I'm a single mother, and you better believe I will knock one of them out and will personally drag that person to the PD before one of my kids ends up with nightmares or hurt. She wrote on the sheriff's original post. (laughs) Uh, Gonzalez, 26, owner of Chicaro's Mexican Grill in Muscatine, lives in an apartment complex on the northeast end of town, not far from some of the sightings. I like how they just give out addresses. Yes. Yes. Uh, Quote. Instead of pointing fingers or saying all these crazy things, she said when I phoned her restaurant to chat more about the men in black. Just come together and help the police department. But that doesn't sound as fun as spouting wild theories. Or as fun as roaming the ditches and households along Highway 22, where the Mississippi River Valley jogs from the west on its way out of the Quad Cities. Jack Blake and his wife, Brenda, overlooked overlook Highway 22 from a ranch home where their typical prowlers are not human ghouls, but deer. Blake admits that they encourage the deer by feeding them ears of corn in their backyard and slopes up into the wooded hillside. I, I found the retired high school shop teacher still sweaty, shirtless, and flecked with sawdust in his garage where he builds walnut rocking chairs and other furniture. Quote, I just got an email from a buddy of mine in Minnesota. Uh, he remarked about the men in black. The buddy had read the news. Where else? On Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing how stuff can spread, isn't it? He said, I I finally found another eyewitness to the men in black. Kellen Whitlow was with her family on a road just north of Highway 22 when I inadvertently interrupted them with their veterinarian preparing preparing to put their beloved old pet dog to sleep. What? 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 Yes. Why? (laughs) 
Just just leave him alone. <laughs> this is the most buckwild story I have ever read. This is great. Yes. Uh, Whitlow explained how she had spotted the men in black in the shine of headlights from a passing semi before I left her and her family to mourn. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll leave you with your, your beloved dog. Um, yes. Thanks for filling me in on the men in black. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, sometimes in this job, I imagine with, with sometimes in this job, I mingle with royalty and presidents. Other times I'm standing over Blaine Carroll as the salesman floats in his outdoor hot tub on the back deck. Jeez. <laughs> he also lives on Highway 22, but has encountered the men in black only as Facebook celebs. If you want a story, buddy, he said, you ought to write about pickleball. <laughs> <laughs> I had stumbled onto the pickleball ambassador of Eastern Iowa. What? Carol and, and fellow lovers of this game played with paddles, apparently a hodgepodge of badminton, ping pong, and tennis, and are and are pushing muscatine to convert some of their tennis courts to pickleball courts. I know it, this isn't as exciting as guys in black. Carol ripped me. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yes. Just a little segue into pickleball for, for no apparent reason. Yes. Uh, Muscatine certainly didn't feel like a city choked with fear. People were walking, were out walking their dogs, playing sand volleyball, bicycling, and even jogging along Highway 22. The men in black reminded some locals of the legend of a ghostly fisherman that supposedly wanders a certain stretch of road south of town. Amanda Young, taking a smoke break outside a tattoo parlor, mentioned the Slender Man, a mythical horror figure and online meme of recent years, who even inspired his own video game. While chatting up residents downtown, a small piece of paper caught my eye in the window of Mississippi Brewing Company. It was a benefit for Sutton James DeVore. The infant was born in April after fewer than 24 weeks in the womb, weighing less than two pounds. His father, Steve, grew up in Muscatine and left about 15 years ago to become a producer of commercials and short films in California. A portion of proceeds of food and drink that night at Mississippi Benefit benefited Sutton as he lingers in intensive care. The dining room and outdoor patio were full. Grandpa Joe DeVore and other relatives were clad in purple t-shirts emblazoned with Sutton Strong. This story is really going all over the place. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, like everything else, this gathering had been organized largely on Facebook. Yet I had discovered it not in my feed or thanks to a hashtag, but because I had gotten out from behind my screens and wandered into the middle of everyday life in Muscatine. The plight of Sutton struck me as a nobler topic than the men in black, whom, whom I hope quickly fade into obscurity before they get themselves or some hapless driver killed. I came in search of elusive boogeyman, but found only fireflies and a growing pickleball scene. But it's amazing how stuff can spread, isn't it? Wow. I, I'm not sure I've ever heard a story that was more in need of 
you know, some editor at the level above this writer saying, can we tighten this up a little bit? Because yes. <laughs> I see what you're going for. I, I see that you're, you're saying, you know, news spreads on Facebook and then, you know, it drowns out other things that might be more valuable and, and, you know, ends with a, a very sort of you kids these days with your screens sort of sort of thing but wow this was ev- this went everywhere didn't it it, it, did. it, ju- it just sort of meandered from 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 thing to thing I, I i hate to be one of those people who says clearly somebody had a word count to hit but <laughs> it it just sort of feels like that. i think the, the the description of pickleball is is probably at the, the point at which i was like okay this this has got to be some cor- some sort of some sort of, you know, slide data is joke that I'm not getting that, you know, this article is just so, so strange, but uh, yes, yeah. yes. Um, I, I, we had to end on a doozy folks. We yes. just had to end on, uh, I couldn't not share that entire thing because I could barely keep it together when I read it the first time. But, uh, <laughs> that folks is, uh, that article perfectly encapsulates how, you know, the men in black phenomenon eludes us all. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, so, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me for this Thanks episode. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, no, I appreciate it. And uh, uh, we, we've also got something coming up uh, in a future episode uh, that's going to be really interesting that, uh, that you are going to be a part of. But uh, in the meantime, where could people keep... Uh, up with uh, all your projects that you got going on, all your pods. What's the best way for them to keep track of that? Uh, yeah, you can uh, follow me on uh, on Twitter at Saucer Life, all one word, or go to saucerlife.com um, and or your favorite podcast app to find episodes of the Saucer Life. Uh, Great Lakes Lore, which is a little more little more regionally focused, but a little more broad topic wise, um, can be found at greatlakeslore.com. And I, I co-host that with uh, with historian Samantha Engel. And um, that's at Great Lakes Lore Podcast uh, on Twitter and um, greatlakeslore.com or your favorite uh, podcast app. So that's um, that's where I am. And on the Saucer Life website are, are links to uh, links to books and other shows I've uh, I've appeared on and things like that. Excellent. Yes. Uh, and if you don't go listen to both podcasts, cause they are, they are fantastic. Uh, as for the, our strange skies podcast, you can find us on most podcasting apps. And if you'd like to help us out ratings and reviews, help, uh, on the platforms that allow it, uh, share the pod with your friends, tell, tell random strangers on the street, uh, <laughs> tell them that you were the men in black and that you should listen to this podcast if you uh, don't want to end up with a chain email curse uh, in your inbox. So uh, bringing that back from, you know, at least 10 years ago, um, if you want to support <laughs> us monetarily, head on over to patreon.com slash your UFO guy for $3 a month. You get early access to episodes like this and bonus episodes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at our strange skies. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song, UFO, as the theme song for this podcast. Special thanks to Spencer Worth Davis for editing our episodes, to Megan Lagerberg for our logo, and to the great Desdemona for our t-shirt designs. Um, uh, There is also a brand new design from Todd Purse, um, the Gondola Man design. If you have not gotten your hands on it, (laughs) go check it out. Uh, It's outstanding. 
Yes, uh, absolutely. Gondola Man will forever live on in infamy. Uh, you can find links to all our social media pro- profiles, Patreon, T Public, all that in the show notes in our link tree. Uh, and you can also find sources to all our episodes in uh, the show notes. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find. In our strange skies, or standing along Iowa Road 22, (laughs) in gray, who we trust. Media.